Good morning, church. All of you. Hey, I'm glad you got up out of bed this morning and braved the weather. I heard it snowing a little bit outside. Mother Nature has lost her mind. Holy cow. I had, I had a t-shirt on yesterday, hanging outside, got up this morning, like, what has happened? Well, listen, before we get into what we're going to talk about this morning, I just want to pray for us and, um, and ask God's spirit to be here and teach us and, and mold us and shape us. So if you would join me in prayer, let's pray this morning. We'll jump in. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to gather. Father, thank you for the beautiful snow outside, God. And I thank you, God, that, um, that you're reminding us once again this morning, Father, that your mercy is new, that your love is new today for us. So help us, God, to be able to recognize that. I pray that it would change the way that we live, that we might live more and more like your son, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. There's a couple of things I really miss from my days when there were um, less children in my home, you know? And one of those things is road trips. Anybody like a good road trip? Anyone? Like, we don't do those anymore. They're like survival trips now. When you go out, you just try to make it. Like, back in the day, road trips were where it was at. Because on a road trip, you weren't just, like, trying to get to your destination. You were trying to enjoy all of it, right? A couple of years ago, I took a group of students, actually, like, three of them from our, from our church here. Three of my favorite students come through this program. Mac Rosecca, Mac Albergati, Wesley Andrews. A little shout-out. Um, took these three with me to Ohio. I had a chance to go speak to a group of students up there, and I love going to speak to students. I love having opportunities to speak like that. And, um, and going up there, too, I love going to Ohio. So it seemed like a, a, a wise choice to make this thing happen. But not only that, what I was most excited about, to be honest, was 12 hours in the car, being able to just drive, listen to music, have fun, and talk. And so we took off early morning to make our way to Ohio. And for the first while, it was a normal kind of trip together. We, we talked about stuff. We made up nicknames for each other like Danger Face and, and uh, Captain Falcon, you know, fun things like that. And then along the way, eventually, once we hit like Asheville, we decided this was not just going to be a normal road trip. This is going to be an epic road trip. We're going to do something new, something different. So we started Googling as we were driving. and We were finding all the historical or unique places we could possibly hit between South Carolina and Ohio. So sure enough, we made it to Knoxville, and supposedly in Knoxville, in like this um, hotel, in the big like middle area, there's the largest functioning Rubik's Cube in the world. Has anyone ever seen this? One of us has. So we, we parked the vehicle illegally, we jumped out, we ran into this hotel and walked in, and sure enough, there it was, in all its glory, this Rubik's Cube. And I'm going to be honest with you, I was a little disappointed, not quite as big as I thought it would be. I mean, it was big, but, you know, it could be bigger. So we looked at it for like five minutes, took a picture, and then we, then we ran back out, got back in the car, and took off driving again. We drove a little further, and we got into Kentucky, and we found the very first Kentucky Fried Chicken ever in Kentucky that we stopped, and we ate at a little museum inside of it, to be honest, it was pretty much like every other KFC I've ever been to in my life. But we enjoyed a meal, and then we drove further. We came to a gas station, and we got out, and in that gas station, they had Ale 81, the greatest drink on the planet Earth. Anybody? Say preach. Okay, thank you. Ale ate one, we got one, we drank. It was, and the, the best thing about the trip was certainly going to Ohio and spending time up there, but the best part of the whole trip actually was all the seemingly insignificant stops along the way. All the things that we took part in that we didn't have to, that seemed like it wasn't really that important, but in the end, really made the trip worthwhile, really made the trip alive. You know, we're in a series right now, we started last week called The Way. If you didn't get a chance to listen to Pastor Nick Cunningham or Pastor Jeff Kersey last week, please go back online and watch those messages. Really, really strong words for us to hear today. I mean, super challenging for me and many um, here in this church, but an awesome setup to the series. Because right now, for the next few weeks, we're going to be um, kind of headlong moving towards Easter as we're going to fully embrace the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But along the way, there are a lot of things that we can learn. 
And so for this series, The Way, we're walking through Luke chapter 9 through Luke chapter 19. And and it's known as the journey narrative. This is Jesus. When he decides, he becomes resolute toward the cross. He decides this is the place that he's heading to. And it makes a conscious choice to start heading to Jerusalem to give up his life on the cross, to die for, for all humanity. And so he begins to move that direction. But along the way, during these 10 chapters, he has these different encounters, these different seemingly unimportant teachings or or rubbing shoulders with certain people. But I believe what we're going to do for the next few weeks is look into some of these encounters and see what it teaches us about living the way of the cross. As Nick shared with us last week, living the way of the cross, living the way of Jesus is not an easy thing. It costs us something. It's a difficult thing. So the question for us becomes, what's it look like to really live this kind of life? For those of us in this church who have aligned ourselves with the crucified and the resurrected Jesus, how does it change the way that we live as we choose to live our life under the reign and rule of God? So just a chapter before what we just read, and what we're going to dive into here in a second, Jesus has just had a discussion with his disciples about the cost of discipleship. He's just expressed the the intense nature of what it means to really follow him. And according to scripture, as soon as this discussion is done, he has a conversation with this man, and the Bible calls him an expert in the law. And this man is a question asker. He comes to Jesus and asks him a very specific question. This man is an expert of the law. This man was a professional teacher of the Mosaic law of God and all the different things that surrounded this particular law. So he would talk about this to all kinds of people, his his profession. This is what he did. He was an expert in the law. So he'd have conversations about this all the time. And for a people who lived their whole life by the law of God, ruling and guiding the way they lived, this law expert, this person had a profession that was extremely important and extremely influential. So Jesus and his disciples, they come across this man, and this man asked Jesus a question. This is not just any question. This question is meant, it's intended to trap Jesus in some kind of way. For whatever way Jesus is going to respond, there are probably many others who had a different opinion about the question this man was asking. So whenever Jesus chose, no matter which one he chose, he was potentially trapping himself as this man asked him the question. You know these kinds of questions. If you're a husband in the room, you you know what this is like. The question, does this dress look nice? You gotta think about that very long and hard. How do I answer this question? When you get asked, do you think that actress is pretty? How do you answer that question? We have questions like this all the time that it seems like it's a lose-lose either way I answer it, even though it's an honest question. This is what's happening with this man and Jesus. Here's the question he asks him in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 28. The man comes to Jesus and says this, on an occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. I love this conversation with Jesus. The man asks the question and Jesus is so smooth. Do you notice that? He didn't even answer it. What's he do? He asks another question. Well, how do you read this? See, Jesus knows this man is an expert of the law. This man is no dummy. He knows exactly what he's doing and he knows exactly the question that he's asking. He knows the answer of the question that he's asking. But he asks Jesus anyway, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus says, what do you think it says? Jesus doesn't take the bait. But the object of the question is eternal life. When we hear the word eternal life, what do we ultimately think of? What? Heaven. What happens after I die? 
When we hear the word eternal life, this is the way that we think about eternal life. What takes place after I die? But the actual original language, when this man asked this question, it is better translated. He's asking, what must I do to inherit life that it supersedes time? What must I do to inherit life, the full life of God? This is the question that's really being asked. He's not asking a question about the future per se. He's rather asking about the quality of life right here and right now that has future implications. Eternal life. Because for us, when we think of eternal life, it's about something that happens when we die. But for a Jewish person, when they thought about eternal life, they believed eternal life was something that started right here and right now. It affected the way they lived right here and right now. And it affected them on into eternity. Now, I know many people in my circles that I run in and people I spend time with who, who honestly probably could care less about, about heaven one day, about what happens after they die one day. But there are a lot of people that I know, including myself, who care a lot about the kind of life they're living right here and right now. I mean, I, I've asked this kind of question before. Probably you've asked the same kind of question that this expert in law has been asking. Essentially, it's this. Is this real life? Like, is what I'm doing right now, is how I'm living right now, am I really fully experiencing the fullness of life? Like the fullness of God, what God has always intended. I work with a lot of millennials here at this church. And in spending time with millennials in this church, what I've found is a lot of them, they believe that real life looks very different from the things that I believe real life looks like. A lot of them believe real life is the accumulation of stuff. It's the discovery of love. It's the amount of likes or retweets you get on whatever you post or the next vacation that's coming along. This is what life is about. And I just have to ask the question, is that real life? And for many of us, maybe we're asking the same kind of question. Like, listen, I do this every day. I get up every day. I live this thing every day. But something about what I'm doing just seems like there's something more. There's got to be something else beyond this right here. This is the question this man is asking Jesus. And Jesus responds to the question of his own. Maybe you found yourself in the same kind of space as this expert in the law. In reality, what is life fully? What's the full life of God? Yes, it has something to do with the future, but it has a lot to do with right here and right now. So Jesus responds to him. What do you think? You know the law of God. What does it say? The man responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Other places in scripture, the Bible says that this law, these two things this man has just mentioned, Jesus has just mentioned, these two things right here, all of the law and the prophets hold and, and hang themselves on these two things. If you do these two things, you will essentially meet all the requirements of the law. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything that you have, and you love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says to him, you're right. If you do this, then you will live. If you do this, you will live. It's kind of amazing to me because there's no disagreement. Do you notice that? The man asks a question. Jesus asks a question back. They come to this conclusion. Love the Lord God and love your neighbor as yourself. And there's no disagreement. Like in theory, Jesus and this expert in the law totally see eye to eye. On paper, they're 100% on the same page. But have you ever had this experience where you're talking with someone and you just get the, the feeling that even though you're saying the same words and you're, and you're communicating the same thing, that somehow you're not, you're not hitting together? This is, I think, what's happening within the story because the very next verse, look what the man says. The man says, as soon as they have this conversation, the man says, okay, well, tell me, Jesus, then, who is my neighbor? 
Okay, Jesus, if, if this is what it's like, then who's my neighbor? I want to I clarify this a little bit. And if you're a parent, you know this question too, because this is the question your kids ask when they're like, hey, how many green beans do I have to eat exactly? Mom, what do you mean by clean room? The man is really trying to find out what, what exactly are you asking of me? Because I don't want to do any more. I want to do exactly what I'm supposed to do and really no further. Because as a Jewish person, there were certain people that these people surrounded themselves with and were living around them, literally physically living around them, they did not want to associate with, period. I know you can't relate to that, but there's probably some people in your life too that you do not want to associate with, Period. And so the man once said, okay, Jesus, who exactly do you mean by my neighbor? Because certainly I'll love the people that look like me, act like me, talk like me, think like me. But for anybody else, I'm not really interested. For anybody that doesn't meet that criteria, I'm not really interested in, in being a neighbor. And so Jesus, who is a master at this, he tells a story to illustrate his point. You see, there's a lot of history behind this story too, because Jesus tells a story about these guys who are traveling from a place called Jerusalem to a place called Jericho. This was a well-known traveling spot that people all over the place knew about. It was a 21-mile um, uh, travel from Jerusalem to Jericho through a really, really gnarly wilderness. It was known as the Bloody Way. Because what would happen is, is you would travel through this area from Jerusalem to Jericho. More than likely, you were going to come across some robbers, thieves, and thugs. One scholar says it this way, this, this wilderness, this wild place was as if the ocean, as its waves were, were churning up, all of a sudden were frozen into stone. This is what it looks like. And it really is a scary looking place. There are caves, there are overhangs everywhere. And these people would, would hold up in these caves and wait for unexpected people to come through. When they would, they would jump on them. They would steal whatever they could. They, they, would, they would beat them until they were dead. This was known as the bloody way, a very, very dangerous place to go. And this is the story that Jesus tells. The listeners, every single person would, knew, would have known exactly what he was talking about. From Jerusalem to Jericho. So Jesus tells this story, Luke chapter 10, 30 through 32. In reply, Jesus says to the man, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to come down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, a part of the religious elite, when he came down the same place, he saw him as well, and he passed by also on the other side. So a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets attacked. He gets left for dead. In fact, the actual words there mean this. He was alive by chance. They meant to kill him. He wasn't supposed to be alive, but he finds himself in a ditch, barely alive, when all of a sudden, someone comes down the road along where he was. Guess what he was? He was a priest, a religious person, leaving Jerusalem, heading to Jericho. Chances are the fact that he's leaving Jerusalem means he just got done worshiping at the temple. And now as he heads to Jericho, he comes across a man who's been beaten, barely alive, laying in a ditch. And instead of walking over to help, what he does, the actual words say that he walked on the other side of the road, the opposite side to pass him by. Now, if you were a priest, the reason you would do this is because if you were to come in contact with a carcass of any kind, someone or something that was dead, if you came in contact with that, you'd be ceremonially unclean. Religiously, you would have compromised yourself. 
And so as this guy goes from this place to that place, he's probably got a lot of stuff going on. He's a priest. He's, he's a religious man. He's probably got God's work on his mind. And so as he goes, he sees this person laying in this ditch as a distraction, as an interruption. And so he goes well around to make sure he has no contact with him. Next, the Bible says, and Jesus tells the story, that a Levite comes by, another religious leader. This person comes by along the road and responds in the exact same way as the priest. Perhaps he looked at this man who was, who was barely alive and said, listen, whatever happened to that guy potentially could happen to me. So I'm going to go as far out around as I possibly can as well, avoid the situation altogether, and continue on my way. The two actions of the very first two people in this story a part of the religious elite stands in stark contrast to what Jesus and the expert in the law had just agreed upon. Again, in theory, on paper, yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, a man is beaten, he's thrown in a ditch, and a priest and a Levite come by. Both of them, both of them walk well around the man who's in need. They just came from Jerusalem. Potentially they had just done the very first thing, a part of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as soon as they come out of Jerusalem, they have an opportunity to do the second part, and they miss it completely because they avoid contact. Here's what the statement that Jesus is trying to make with these first two passerbys. These two individuals were more concerned about preserving the religious purity than being obedient to God. They were more concerned with preserving themselves than being obedient to God. It makes me wonder, how often am I that kind of passerby? How often am I someone who sees someone who's in need? And instead of going to help, I decide there's something else that's on my mind, something else that's on my agenda, a different way that I've chosen, and that's out of the way. Therefore, I'm going to pass by on the other side and miss it altogether. I'd hate to say it. And this entire week, this has been eating me alive as I've read this and, and, and wrestled through it. But I'm afraid this is kind of how I live my life too often. I pat myself on the back for being this religious person, but in the end, I neglect the people who are broken along my path. And chances are I'm not the only person. I mean, are we attempting to preserve our purity at the expense of being obedient to God? I mean, as a culture, we find ourselves too busy, too distracted, too entitled, too elite to truly love our neighbor as ourself. And even as I sit here, I can, I can feel the pushback. And, and the reason I can feel it is because I did it all week. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. I do love people. I really, really do. And all these instances came into my mind where I had the opportunity to help someone in need, to come along someone who is broken. And instead of doing it, I, I convinced myself that the other thing that I was a part of, the other thing I was doing, the other way that I was chosen was more important than doing this, than having this conversation, than helping in this kind of way. We have to protect ourselves from not allowing our religious action to make us feel that that alone is proof that we love other people. And so we come on a Sunday morning and we, and we give and we tithe or we have our church attendance. And I, I came out even this morning in the snow, I came to church. We listen to Caleb, we read the latest Christian bestseller. But in the end, do we actually love our neighbor? Do we see those who are in the ditch? Do we see those who are left half dead? 
And are we willing to do something? As Nick reminded us last week, being a follower of Jesus, it's going to cost us something. We should be people who are willing to scan the ditches for those in need. I'm a professional Christian. This is like what I do. I get paid for this. And unfortunately, in doing so, I am so ashamed in some of the ways that I've decided to live my life. You know, I live in a neighborhood. I probably know four or five names of people that I live with in my neighborhood. For the most part, people that look like me, think like me, act like me. And I've not even reached out there. For the most part, I associate with people that look like me and act like me and think like me and vote like me. And for a lot of times, I feel like one time a year when I go on a mission trip, I feel like I've stretched myself out of my comfortable zone to do something great for God. I've been so convicted by this. Because I say all kinds of things that I believe, but how often does that belief actually translate into actual action? There's one more person in the story that Jesus tells who passes by this man who's in the ditch. And it goes like this in Luke chapter 10, 33 through 35. But then a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was and he saw him. He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses that you have. To every listener of this story at this point in time, they would have been horrified to see that the priest and the Levite did nothing. But the Samaritan who comes along, he in fact is the one who goes by to help the man, to heal his wounds, to bandage his wounds. Because Samaritans and Jews had very bad blood. For hundreds of years, these two different groups of people have been at each other's throats. Because Samaritans, though they have like Jewish background, they had intermarried into all different kinds of nations. They had a mixture of worship, not only of God, but other idols as well. They had a whole different place of worship away from Jerusalem and the temple. And the Jews saw Samaritans as less than human, the most awful people on the planet Earth. This is how they thought of them. And so for this man to receive help from a Samaritan was unthinkable. But within the story, this Samaritan man, as he comes along, he sees the same man in the ditch, the same man who's been hurting and beaten. He walks over, he bends down, he binds up his wounds, he puts him on his own donkey, he takes him to a place of safety, he pays for it all and says, any other expense that comes along the way, I will return and I will take care of as well. You see, this guy didn't see the guy in the ditch as an interruption or distraction. He saw that guy as his neighbor. He saw him as his neighbor. Jesus is making two very strong points in this story. Number one, this. What if the ones that we see as in the way actually are the way? What if we were to see the people that we consider to be in the way as, actually as the way? What if, we, what if we saw people that were distractions actually as our mission? What if we saw people that were inconveniences as incredible opportunities for us to live out the faith that we profess? See, for many of us, we have this destination in mind, this place that we're heading, this place that we're going. And we find our agenda more important than anybody else's. And so when we find someone who's hurt, who's struggling, who's broken, we tend to turn away as well. And the reason I know is I do the same thing. 
But what if those people, those opportunities, those situations were actually the best way for us to be obedient to the law of God? Last summer, I took a group of young adults to Alaska and um, we flew into Fairbanks and we got in about 1.30 in the morning. And if you've ever been to Fairbanks in the summertime, 1.30 in the morning, it's like two in the afternoon in South Carolina. And so we came out of the airport, it was like blazing sun and we walked to get our vehicles and we got in, there was 15 of us and we drove to this little church in Fairbanks, Alaska. We got into the basement we were staying and so luckily it was dark in there and we, we huddled together, we prayed together and we went to bed about three in the morning. And we decided though, even when we were tired, we were gonna get up the next morning and go worship with this church that was housing us for the weekend. So we got up, we got ready, went to the service, about 75 people in the whole church. And we sat down and we had an amazing time of worship and very different from what we experienced here. We had communion together, but it was just an awesome, awesome time. And at the end of the service, when the service was all complete and all done and people were about to get up to leave, a woman stood up in the middle of the sanctuary, turned to the largest group of people and said, listen, I'm asking for help because my husband has dementia. We've been trying to move from this house to this new house and we had a rental truck. We couldn't do it in time. We had to get rid of the truck and we're stuck in between. And with my husband and his sickness, I, I don't know how we're gonna do it. Would anybody be willing to help? And so we watched and, and nobody responded. Nobody looked like they were gonna make a move toward this woman. And so I leaned forward and the 15 of us, I looked at everybody and everybody was like, let's do it. So sure enough, we, we got up, we walked over to the lady and said, hey, listen, um, we're from South Carolina. We're here for this other thing, but we don't have to do anything till 4 p.m. today. We've got about six hours. We'd be happy to load up in our rental vehicles and help you move stuff. And so we followed this lady and her husband to their home and this home had a lot of stuff. And so we got out and we began to help them move out of this house. And we had conversations with the both of them. And we literally, we know we were moving to North Pole, Alaska, which who doesn't want to go to North Pole, Alaska. So we, we traveled there. We unloaded into this house of a family they were going to be living with because they, they had hit hard times. They're having to move in with another family just to make ends meet. And I'll never forget when we got finished up, this lady was so grateful and we got done, and as a group, we started talking. We're like, listen, this is not what we were here for. We didn't come here for this. But then I thought to myself, maybe we did. Maybe we did. I mean, we, sp we spent all this money. We came here to partner with this organization and do these certain things. But when this opportunity arose, every one of us, we just said, listen, this is not just a distraction. This is, this is the mission. This is, in fact, what we are here for. And without a drop of a hat, we decided to help these folks. I mean, who is someone in your family right now, someone in your neighborhood, in your circle of friends, from the other part of town, from that other country, with different colored skin, with that negative attitude, or someone who has caused you pain that needs to benefit from your particular love for God? This statement that Jesus is making at that time and this time is extremely political. It is extremely religious. It's extremely racial, and it's extremely socioeconomic. And it's a challenge for us to believe and to practice that no one is undeserving of our love and the love of God. Not one person, even a group of people who you have hated for hundreds of years is not exempt from the love of God and your love. This statement that Jesus is making is a huge statement. And chances are this was the reason many people would have pushed back towards it then, and probably many of us today would push back as well. It doesn't sit right with us. We can't imagine that God would be truly in love with everyone, but in fact, this is the story that Jesus is telling. Even the Samaritan, even the Samaritan is loved by God. 
The second point I think Jesus is making is even more convicting for me. Because it's about right belief versus right action. It's about right belief and right action. You see, the full life of God, eternal life, has more to do with right action than it does right belief. Because as a Christian, it is not about getting a bunch of information into your head. It is about having that information become application. That's what leads to transformation. That's how we live as believers. And when Jesus tells this story, if you remember, Jesus and this man 100% agree in theory on everything they talked about. Yes, love the Lord your God with all these things and love your neighbor as yourself, no problem. That's what it looks like to inherit the kingdom of God. If you do that, you will live. But as soon as Jesus begins to tell this story, he is revealing the underlying aversion that would keep this man from acting out his beliefs in real life. What is being demonstrated, I think, here is what too often happens within the worldwide church, what happens within my life. Man, we love to talk about our belief, don't we? The things and, and the convictions that I hold so true. But what happens when our beliefs hit real life? Is there a people, a situation, a place that your beliefs simply won't go? Is there a skin color, a nationality, a religion, a socioeconomic status, a gender, a social group that render your beliefs worthless? This is what Jesus is trying to get to in this conversation with this man. You believe all of the right things, but your beliefs are not translating into action. And this story proves it. You know, unfortunately, we are a society who lives on like compartmentalizing and dividing we're often told who we, should who we should love and how we should love. We consider our neighbor as long as they think and act and believe just like we do. But Jesus himself tells the story about the people that the Jews saw as their greatest enemy. And they're considered a neighbor. And choosing to love them is choosing the way of the cross. When we truly experience the love of God in our life, then what we come to find is that the grace and the compassion and the mercy that's been given to us is the very thing that should flow out of us toward the people that we come in contact with, no matter who they are. So Luke 10, 36 to 37, Jesus ends the story this way. He asked the man, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And I can almost hear this man's response. You can almost tell he just doesn't even want to say it. But he says, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him. Then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. So Jesus finishes the story. I can see him look this man in the eye and ask him, which one of these people is the neighbor? Which one acted as the neighbor? And the person who should never have even understood this is actually the one that lives it out. And he calls the man on his bluff and he convicts him of his bigotry. This man believed this is the way that you encounter God. This is the way that you love God. And Jesus blew up everything he'd ever thought. And this man, the Samaritan man in the story, was the only one who lived out the actual commands of the Old Testament. When it says this in Micah 6, 8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is what the Lord requires of us. This, this simply is the way of the cross to act justly, to be a part of putting right what has gone wrong, to love mercy, to not play by the rules of our culture that is eye for the eye, but instead 
to offer forgiveness, to walk humbly, to see ourselves the way God sees us and to put other people first. You see, I grew up watching a television show about this older gentleman who always wore cardigans. And every kid in the room was like, what are you talking about? When I was a kid, I watched this show and this man, he would, he would come and he would sit on this bench. He would untie his shoes and he'd put them next to the bench just so. And he would take his cardigan and put it on a hanger and put it in the closet. He'd have this conversation with those who were watching. I remember as he had this conversation, he always ended the conversation in the exact same kind of way. Do you remember? He would say, won't you be my neighbor? Won't you be my neighbor? Here's what I'm so convicted by. I hope and I pray that in my greatest time of need, when someone sees me broken and in the ditch and comes to help me, I would not look at them and say, listen, you don't act and think and do the things that I do. I don't need your help. My greatest prayer would be that when I find people who don't act and think and look like me, that I would still be willing to go in and express love and serve them, period. Now, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of people who I would disagree with when it comes to my beliefs, but what I don't disagree with is I still gotta love them. I still have to serve them. Here's how I know. This man, Jesus, it makes me wonder if as he's having this conversation, he's thinking about what he's gonna be doing in, in a few short days as he's heading to Jerusalem, as he's heading to the cross, as he's gonna give his life up, be crucified and die for that expert in the law, for the people who would drive nails into his hands and to his feet, for you, for me. You see, Jesus is the greatest neighbor that we could ever hope to come across. He's the very one, as scripture says, that was willing to come and pursue us and love us and take care of us, even though we were sinners. And this is the example that we're given on how to live the way of the cross. Give up your life. And I can't help but, but see the connections here. As it says in Isaiah that when Jesus went to the cross, when he died for us, by his wounds, we are healed. See, it's the same thing that happens in the story. This Samaritan, this man that comes along is the only one who shows neighborly love and service towards this man who's broken and beaten. This is what Jesus has done for us. So don't mistake this. As we head headlong into Easter to fully embrace Jesus' death and his resurrection, what it means to celebrate Easter fully, we first have to come to realize we have a lot of beliefs and things that we say we believe. What if we were to take those things and actually put them into practice? What if we were to live them out? How would our world look different? How would things change? I want to do something risky. If you would, just stand with me. It's right where you are. If there's someone close enough to you, or if you need to scoot a little bit, do this. I'm just going to ask, just take hands with someone next to you really quick. Now, for some of you, are like, oh, no problem, my wife, duh. But some of you, are like, I don't know that person. Good, good. We're going to take hands all across the sanctuary. Maybe the person that you're holding hands with, you've never met before in your life. You've never seen them in your life. The good news is, you can love them. You can serve them. That's what we're called to. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you today so grateful 
that when you saw us, God, in the ditch, broken, in incredible need, you didn't pass around us, God, but instead you came right into our midst. In fact, Jesus, you broke yourselves to match our brokenness that you might show us that we could have life once again. And so, Father, we thank you for the conviction. We thank you for the challenge. Help us, God, to respond correctly. I pray, God, that we would not be a church who has beliefs and only beliefs, but we have beliefs that get turned into action. So as as we hold hands with someone we don't know today, God, I pray that you'd help us to see, Father, how easy it is to step down the aisle. As we leave this place today, may we be Christians who look in the ditch for those who are broken and who are in need, and may we be willing to come to their aid. It's in your name that we pray this morning, God. Amen.